you might have had this as well, where you feel like you've got that golden 15 minutes where you suddenly feel clarity when you've been drinking a lot. And you know you've got this window before everything shuts down. So you've got to gap at home as fast as you can. Um, however unsafe it is. And I remember getting stuck behind a minibus taxi. And it was a taxi shooting. And I didn't know that until the guy ran up to my car and said, please help us. So put this bleeding man in the car, drove off to the nearest hospital, dropped them both off at the door and drove away. And the next morning when I went, when I woke up and I saw blood all over my face and my clothes, I couldn't remember where it had come from. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 107. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. The main thing that I was looking for, the benefit that I hoped to get was sleeping because I've never been a good sleeper. And okay, I'm not the best sleeper now. I do still wake around 3.30, but I wake lovely. I wake happy with myself, at, at ease with myself, at peace with the world. I pot around, I have a drink, I go to the toilet, I come back and I go back to sleep. Whereas before I worried about everyone, everything and Mainly, I just spent the time beating myself up and, you know, crying into my pillow. Why did I drink again? So if you want to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest today is a household name here in South Africa. After a long career as a radio presenter, Sam Cohen wrote a book called From Whiskey to Water, which documents her struggles with alcohol. Sam came close to killing herself, often driving home so drunk that when she woke the next morning, she had no idea how she'd got home, let alone what she had said and done the night before. She did manage to ditch the drink, but then became addicted to food, piling on 25 kgs in her early sobriety. Her salvation turned out to be swimming, which is where she found serenity, and training as a recovery coach has brought purpose into her life. I began by asking Sam to introduce herself. I've been in radio 27 years, um, and I've been coaching for six, which I'm sure we'll get on to. When I first started in radio, it was very exciting. It was 1993, so just before the 94 elections, which 
still I think is the most exciting time of my life was covering that. And then after a while, I moved to something called um, High Felt Stereo, which then became 94.7. And that was all about trying to, I'd gone from being deep in the thick of things to kind of trying to make things better by almost the show we did was very much more fun, very kind of creative and off the wall and and that lasted 14 years. And then I did another breakfast show. And then I went to talk radio for nearly two years. And by then I was burnt out. So yeah, I went yeah, on to sure. do other things. Right. Nice, nice, solid background there. Though. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's delve into your drinking story, shall we, yes. Sam? Do you remember your first drink? Were you a crazy teenage drinker? Not at all. I... I remember having the odd Southern Comfort and appetizer, and it never did anything to me. I wasn't even vaguely interested in alcohol. It was one of those things that you do because your friends were drinking. And I never drank more than one at a time because my pocket money was quite lean. And a Southern Comfort and appetizer back then was six rand fifty, which I think is minus ten pounds actually by wow. today's exchange rate. So, but it was expensive for me. And I stopped drinking. I didn't drink through varsity at all. And then I went to work at 702 Talk Radio, which was the only independent talk radio station in the country at that time. Up until then, I'd been a very anxious child. I was quite a lonely child. And, and people don't believe that when they meet me. They go, no, there's nothing anxious about you. And I go, that's because I'm medicated. But I was very lonely and very anxious. And I got to 702. And they had something called an honor bar on a Friday evening. And obviously, you just put in what you could afford or you know, you thought you should pay. And that was the first time I drank whiskey. And I remember thinking for the very first time in my life, wow, I've come home. And it was that clear a thought. And I felt calm. I felt pretty. I felt funny. I felt sexy. I felt all of those things in a glass and a half of whiskey. And well, two whiskeys, not a full glass and a half. That came later. And what was interesting, and back then, journalism was very much a male-dominated world. Because, uh, of course, women stayed at home and looked after the children and men went off and, you know, shot the most horrific photographs and, and covered the most difficult stories. So in a male-dominated environment, it's very difficult to make connections when you're a girl. And one of the places you can is alcohol. And in a lot of ways, that's still true. So, for example, if you think about how guys play golf together and how they go to sport together, and women don't do that. We don't do that. If you think about corporate functions pre-COVID, You'll never see a group of corporate women going on a spa day, but you'll always see men going off on a golf day or going to the rugby. So I couldn't relate on that level, but I got a reputation for being able to hold my alcohol. And I mean, that was a badge of honor. Oh, Sam Cowan can definitely, she can hold her drink. And so it started like that. And it became this kind of haze of happiness. And it never affected my work. I was clear headed as anything. Back then, it was more to be one of the guys. Because who wants to be one of the girls when all they do is stay home? Yeah, you just want to fit in, don't you? Yeah, hundreds. I heard on another interview that you, you struggled a little bit with all the publicity that you have to do as a, a radio star. Did that step up the drinking a bit, do you think? So when I was at 702, it was in a much uh, more behind-the-scenes capacity. I was Every now and again I was on air and I did some reporting, but I, I became a news producer so I was very seldom in the public eye. And then when I moved over to Highfelt, I moved over with Jeremy Mansfield, who was massive here, is still massive here. We started a show called The Rude Awakening. 
what what had happened just before the show started was there was a massive crime wave in South Africa, huge. And all of the news organizations had covered this crime and the country was so depressed. So what we decided to do as the rude awakening was never talk about crime because we were a fun show. We were a music show. We thought there's news bulletins, there's television programs. They can get their crime knowledge anywhere else. But we never talked about crime. And so we did big, crazy things in the show, shot to the top of the charts in terms of profitability, in terms of listenership. I mean, we grew the listenership something stupid in the first year, not double. But what happened was I've always been quite a a boyish girl. I've never really been a, a makeup and doing things kind of person. The first time I did a TV interview, I just chucked on a bit of eyeliner and some lipstick and it didn't occur to me to do anything else. And then I started getting these emails and faxes. From people saying, we thought you'd be really pretty and you're not. How rude. No, really. I mean, one guy said, I'm going to stop listening to the show now because I really thought you looked different. And I was devastated. And up until that point, looks had never really been important to me. I didn't think I was very pretty. I had very pretty face. But it didn't occur to me that I was ugly. And suddenly it all became about looks. And I started noticing that other girls in radio were in magazine articles and doing amazing shoots. And no one was asking me. And it really set my self-confidence. And of course, when your self-confidence is on the floor, what do you do? You fill up that void. And alcohol was always there, almost my friend. And as when I was drinking, it didn't matter what I looked like. I was still the funniest. I remember there was one Valentine's Day where Jeremy said to me, what are you spending? How are you spending Valentine's Day? And I said, with my three favorite men, Jack Kerouac, Jack Daniels, and Tom Waits. And everyone thought I was hilarious, but actually I was sitting at home and crying because I was so lonely. <laughs> oh, and it didn't matter because by then I discovered Shiraz. Yeah, another friend. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, Sam, were you worried about the drinking or didn't really cross your radar that you might be developing a dependence? So looking back now, I should have been worried, but I wasn't. Mm. Um, everyone drank a lot. And yeah. I was quite aggressive when people did bring up my drinking. Like it's none of your business. But things had started to happen that weren't normal. Drinking to the point that you know you can't drive home, so you drive into a multi-story car park, park the car there in the corner and sleep it off there because that's a safe thing to do, and then tell all your friends because you think you're so clever to have thought of that, that's not normal. You know, driving home one night, you might have had this as well, where you feel like you've got that golden 15 minutes where you suddenly feel clarity when you've been drinking a lot. And you know you've got this window before everything shuts down. So you've got to gap at home as fast as you can, um, however unsafe it is. And I remember getting stuck behind a minibus taxi. And it was a taxi shooting. And I didn't know that until the guy ran up to my car and said, please help us. So put this bleeding man in the car, drove off to the nearest hospital, dropped them both off at the door and drove away. And the next morning when I went, when I woke up and I saw blood all over my face and my clothes, I couldn't remember where it had come from. Yeah, th- those blackouts are terrifying, aren't they? I got my fair share of those. They they just got worse and worse as I got older. My blackouts began as those kind of blurry things where, you know, you can't quite remember the end of the evening or the journey home. I always used to wake up and look for my handbag and my jacket, wondering if they'd got home safely yeah. with me. Oh, and as I got older, I started losing chunks of time. And I think that's when I started really getting scared because, um, you know, it means that we're affecting our brain and, and our brain can't even make memories when we're completely drenched in the stuff. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. 
back then I didn't know that. I mean, when I look back now, and people tell me funny stories about when I was drinking and we're all laughing and they're laughing because they remember what I did and I'm laughing because it's the first time I've ever heard it. And and every now and again, I'll, I'll find out something years later. I mean, I think I'd been sober 14 years or 13 years when I found out that I'd taken the mirror off a car that had parked me in and dented the bonnet with my stiletto heel because I was angry I'd been parked in. And then I drove out and scraped that car because I wanted to get out so badly. And everyone was like, do you remember how funny you were and how angry? And I was mortified. I thought, that's not who I am. You know, I, I would, the idea of being that person. But at that stage, I was still in denial because it was my only friend. It really was my only friend. Friends from the time would probably be upset if they heard that, but most of my friends back then were drinking partners. So that finished. When you get sober, you, you realize how very lonely. Yeah, well, you, you surround yourself with people like you because then yeah. it makes you feel comfortable about your drinking. And that's why it gets tricky when we stop because we, exactly. we then make those people feel uncomfortable about yeah. their drinking. And isn't that funny that if people take stop taking drugs, nobody tries to make them feel uncomfortable. When you stop drinking People want to quit. Well, how drunk do you think you are? And talking about what you said there about when did when you know you knew you had a problem, I only really accepted that I had a problem six months before I stopped. Wow. And even then it took yeah. me six months. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know reading in your book that story about you kind of driving home in your car and there was vomit in your hair and they, yeah. they took you straight off to AA. I found mm -hmm. that that quite chilling you, you you must have put your life at risk so many times with the driving so many thing. times I, I i didn't drive when because growing up in the uk you know we're so brainwashed about that you know you put your seat belt on and yeah. you don't drink but i think here it's very different isn't it it was by the grace of god that i never killed anyone or myself yeah i mean i have no right to be sitting here i, I don't and thank god any damage I did was only ever psychological. It was never physical to anybody else. But, yeah, that day that I stopped, I'd broken all my rules. Yeah, see, tell us about the that night. I was a high-functioning alcoholic, uh, although I didn't know what the terms were at the time. You know. <laughs> well, um, we all were, weren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but up until that point, I kept thinking alcoholics are people who keep their booze um, in the shampoo bottles and spray hairspray into their mouths and lie on streets holding bottles and looking awful. It never occurred to me that that would be me. I was a good girl. You know, I had a high-powered job, and I never was drunk at work. I used to judge people who drank at work. And I might go in with a hangover that had my eyes bleeding out of my face, but never a drinker at work. I'd have a few beers at a, at a function or a glass of wine, and I never drank before four in the afternoon unless somebody asked me out for lunch, in which case is it really my fault. But there were lots of little rules, and I didn't break them. And that day I got drunk at my parents, and people laugh at me when they say, was that your rock bottom? Because other people have affairs or they kill people. But no, I got drunk at my mum's. And the reason that was my rock bottom was because I couldn't make any more excuses. You know, I was in a place where I was safe with people that I loved and there was no reason for that to have happened. I've lost the day. Uh, I found out that, um, I write about it in my book, I found out that I'm able to do something called Sauvage where you could take the, the champagne, the top of a champagne bottle off with a sword. And, and that's one regret that I have, that I only ever got to do that once because, you know, if you're good at something, you should do it more than once. There was so much else and we got, I got home and I'd driven in my own car and my husband had driven in his because I'd gone early to help my mum with the party. We both got home at the same time and he said, you drove home on the right-hand side of the road, which of course in South Africa is the wrong side of the road. And he said, I don't know what to do, Sam, tell me what to do. And I sat in the, on the floor in the, in, the, in the garage and 
covered in vomit. I don't even know where I was. And I said, I have to go to AA right now. Because I looked at him in that minute and I thought, I do love you more than alcohol, but only a tiny bit more. And it would have flipped over. And the other terror that I had in that moment of lucidity was, and you'll know what this is like. Sometimes you've really tied one loose, but the next morning you don't have a hangover. So you kid yourself it wasn't that bad. And the joke of it was the next morning I didn't have a hangover. So I knew I would never have stopped. So I said, I have to go to AA. So I went to a friend who had been in AA at that stage for eight years. She said to me, would I like a, a clean T-shirt to wash my hair? I said, no, uh, no one will notice. And I went to this meeting covered in vomit. And it was so, I mean, the way I describe it is very funny, but I don't mean it to seem trivial. It was like going to a charismatic church meeting or a herbal life meeting. You know, it was just so many different people from different walks of life. Mm. You wouldn't have known. It wasn't a whole bunch of scared, chain-smoking old beggars, you know. It was Oh, you had your biker guys, but you had your young, good-looking people. You had suburban mums, every kind of person. And for the second time in my life, I knew I'd come home. Oh, yeah, that's what I love about the recovery community. You know, we're, we're such a cross-section of people, aren't we, from from everywhere yeah. and every age. And it's, it's an amazing place to live. Yeah. Let, let's talk about your book. I reread it recently, and I was thinking, what what a brave book it was, really. You know, you really <laughs> go into to so much detail, and that got me thinking about Claire Pooley. I don't know if you know about Claire Pooley. She she's a Brit. She wrote uh, a book called The Sober Diaries, yeah. which was. Did you ever read Bridget Jones? Um, yes, yes. Diary. Well, she wrote The Sober Diaries in that kind of style. You know, it, it was absolutely great. She was, um, well, she is a mom of three, you know, but she she found herself drinking red wine one morning out of a mug that said the world's best mum. <laughs> <laughs> and that completely freaked her out. Anyway, she, she wrote this, you know, very frank memoir, which is a top selling book. And she, she'd started her writing with an uh, anonymous blog. You know, it was called Mommy, was a Mommy is a Secret Drinker or something. So that was fine. And the blog was very successful because she's a very good writer and it had about a million hits. And then she was approached by a publisher who said, let's make a book out of this. So she was quite excited. And then it went to publication. And that night, you know, she knew it was coming out in the morning and she could not sleep a wink. You know, all she could think about was what about the mums at the school gates you know what are they going to think about me and I just wondered if you went through that angst before publication did you think oh my god what have I done I've put it all out there I think because of what had happened with my children so my kids had started telling their friends that's why I wrote the book because I'd always wanted to because I found other people's experiences so helpful I mean when I started with stopping drinking I read a lot of personal sort of memoirs and things like that that really helped. My, my own quintessential Bible at the time was by a lady called Caroline Knapp. It was called Drinking oh, yeah. a Love, love Story. Oh, <laughs> we all love just, that one, don't we? That is the greatest book on drinking I've ever read, ever, ever. And so it was almost a relief. I mean, one thing that isn't in the book is that my son had done a speech, an inter-school speech at a contest where he talked about how he found it very stressful knowing that his mother could start drinking again any minute and how I'd been in rehab five times. And I was like, but none of that's true. And he goes, I know, but I got such a good mark. And then the judge gave me a hug. And I was like, oh, my God, Christopher, I'm still on air. So, 
So it's kind of to get my own my own my own story out. I felt like yes. being one of those press people. Well, if you've got yours out, I've got to get mine out. But it was interesting because I felt like I'd lived the whole journey again, and I realized right up until that point, I didn't care about anyone's judgment because my own was so harsh. And nobody could judge me any more than I did. I mean, I remember one reviewer when the book came out saying to me, you know, quoting the serenity prayer and said, have you finally found serenity? And I didn't even think twice. I said to her, no, I'm not built for it. And she cried. And I said to her, you have to keep beating yourself up. And this was 14 years into what is now 20 years. I said, you have to keep beating yourself up. You need to do penance forever because if you don't, you'll drink again. And that's how I'd lived up till then. And, and that was how it was. And the last, the next six years changed everything. Now I have serenity. But yeah. at the time, it that Old Testament God was yeah. very prevalent. Yeah. That's a bit of a downside of the AA mm. thing for me. I think it does yeah. ex- exacerbate the guilt and yeah. label yourself. So, yeah. Okay, well, I'm so glad you've got out of that now. Yeah, you talked about um, a void. I could really identify with that. I had a void in my first year of sobriety because I'd I'd kind of started a blog and I'd started Tribe Sober, you know, just mm-hmm. in a little way. I was running little workshops. Now it's and amazing. I, so I, I'd kind of painted myself into a corner, you know, and my husband was so proud of me. There was no way I could start drinking again. But I was I bored, you know, and I was depressed. And I thought, what have I done? You know, I'm not sure I can make it in this boring sober world and that was very much a void and it wasn't until I really threw myself into tribe sober and you know did lots of stuff that void lifted but you filled yours with ice cream oh that's I another way fat. to go wow I put on 25 <laughs> kilograms overall I topped the scale after I'd had my son I topped the scale at 101 and it was so weird it was like you think when somebody's very overweight that they're very obvious and actually you just feel most invisible and think about it, if you ever go into a restaurant or into um, a social area, I know we don't do that anymore, but maybe we did. Um, What's a social area? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you'll never, you're always drawn, your eye is always drawn to somebody good looking. That's how it works. It's biological. And the fat person stands in the corner, you barely notice. And I like that. I like not being noticed. You know, I got to still be on air and be crazy and funny and acerbic, but I could just hide. And I hid in my fatness, you know, and and I, I hid in it for a long time. And I just ate and ate and ate and ate. I mean, there were days I'd eat three liters of ice cream, nothing else, just three liters of ice cream. And then what happened was my body started to conk in. Like you're not supposed to carry that amount of weight on a frame like mine. And my back was always sore. My neck was always sore. My knees were always sore. And I ran into a friend who said, well, my mum used to be a doctor and she's still got a prescription pad and she can give you a whole bunch of good stuff. So I went along to see her and she gave me a page and a half of drugs. And I sat in my car with this prescription and about half of the first page was stuff for pain. And then there was other stuff, stuff I'd have to take because the one drug made me nauseous. And I thought, Sam, is this how you want life to be for the rest of your life? And that was exactly what I asked myself in the mirror four months before I stopped drinking. I looked in the mirror. I had permanent hand tremor. And that morning, and I'm going to be brutal, I'd had yet another green stool. So I knew my liver was under stress. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, is this how your life's going to be for the rest of it? And sitting in that car with that script felt the same way. So I threw the script away and I joined a gym. Well done. Yeah, I'm sure you would have got hooked on some of those pills, Sam. Yeah, I would. Of course, I would have. Of course, I would have. I mean, 
that's the one thing about stopping drinking. I had hallucinations. I had the DTs. I didn't know that's what they were. I thought I'd got flu just really suddenly. You know, I could barely move. I was sweating. Everything hurt. Even my fingernails hurt. And at that point, they weren't even mine. And so then I joined a gym and I would walk on the treadmill and I would walk on the jogging track and I'd do the odd sit up. And then I got a trainer and that just changed everything. Now it was a competition. Now it was all a competition and it didn't fill that void, but I was like, I have to do more than yesterday. I have to be more than yesterday. There has to be something in this. And then I found swimming. And for the third time in my life, I felt like I'd come home. Yeah. 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 Your, your swimming story is amazing. I mean, that cold water it makes me feel quite ill reading. About it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm deeply in admiration of you for doing that. So uh, just tell us about the swimming. You ended up uh, doing Robin Island twice. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So when I first started swimming, what I loved about swimming was the silence. And, this, and, and the feel of the water, because I think I say in the book, I filled the void up with water and I swam in it. And it was beautiful. And I used to swim open air. I mean, I'd, I'll swim in the gym if I have to, but I love an open air swimming pool. It can be a pool. It can be a, a lake. It can be anything. I just, I feel like I'm in the world then. Whereas in a gym, I feel like I'm in a bit of a fishbowl, excuse the pun. And I would swim at night. There was a, there was a swimming um, pool, a, a municipal one, and they would let you swim till eight o'clock at night. And I was so happy. And I swam, and so sometimes I swam up to six Ks, just up and down, up and down, up and down. And by the way, I'm not a beautiful swimmer at all. No one's ever going to look at me and think I want to swim like Sam, but I can go for a very long time at a consistent pace. Anyway, kind of very long story short, a very nice man said, I see how much you swim, and I wondered if you'd like to do a Robin Island. And of course, as an alcoholic and an addict, you'll know this. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. <laughs> and I thought if it's nice doing this, imagine how much nicer it could be. So I started training for the swim and it nearly finished me. It was so hard. I would cry on the way to the pool. I worked so hard. I got stronger and better. I lost so much weight. I looked amazing. And I was so anxious. I was the most anxious I'd ever been. And on the day of the swim, I remember being in the water thinking, I can never do this again. I, I, I hate this. And it was interesting because I'd found that serenity in just doing and being. And without even realizing it, I'd given it away. And I did the Robin Island. At that stage, it was the coldest first time swim on record. Everyone congratulated me. I, I lost hours of my life. I remember lying in my own vomit again at the Big Bay Rescue Club. <laughs> Deja in a vu. costume. Yeah, in a costume on the ground. Both of my friends sitting next to me. Um, and I've lost that time. I, I, there's hours I don't remember. I was so sad because I felt I'd lost everything. And to cut a very long story short, I, I wanted it back so much. So I went and did a little swim. And the little swim started off so horribly. It smelled of fish and the water wasn't pretty. I was so angry. I, I kept thinking to the sea, but I came back to you. I came back to you. And weirdly enough, it was only when I turned around and I looked at how big the swell was. And I thought, you're trying to fight life the way you did when you drank, the way you did while you ate. And actually, the sea is a perfect, perfect, perfect metaphor for life because the sea doesn't love your cage. It just is. And you can choose how you swim. And sometimes you can't swim. Sometimes you just got to float. Sometimes you've just got to float and trust that you can. You don't have to keep going and going until you drown. 
And that's when I got the magic of water back and I never lost it again. So it took me a long time to find the serenity because I kept searching for what I wanted. And, and when, I, when I left radio, it was the best thing because I realized that I could live life on my own terms. And, you know, for 27 years, I'd, I'd made other people look good. And that was my job. And, and also my entire life was based on what other people thought. You know, if the listeners were happy, I was good at my job. And if they weren't happy, I was bad at my job. If the sales were up, it was great. If they weren't, I was in trouble. And when I went out on my own to coach, I trained as a recovery coach. And during COVID, I did a lot of recovery coaching because even when they banned alcohol, people just couldn't not have it, you know, and, and people were panicking and getting angrier and angrier. I mean, I have one client um, who's since gone into sober living. Uh, she was drinking sanitizer because she couldn't get alcohol. I mean, she's wow. burnt her esophagus so terribly because oh. um, you're not meant to down 70% proof. But I realized that I had a place in the world and I could help people just by being honest and vulnerable and telling the truth. And, and that's become my life purpose. And now I have serenity. Now I have peace because I know I'm where I need to be in the world. And when people say, do you ever crave? Very salt. Every now and again, I could really do with a drink. Like when something utterly dreadful happens. I think to myself, a glass of wine really take the edge off. And it would. Let's not kid. It's lying yeah. to that. It wouldn't. It's just you've got to, and I know I sound like a record. I'm sure every person you interview says this. You've just got to play that movie to the end. Yeah. You've got to yeah. do something else, really. Yeah. Going back to your early recovery, Sam, I like the, the sound of your friend Cindy, you know, the one that took you out to breakfast. That, that's, that's so practical, isn't it? And yeah. I do breakfast a lot, you know, sometimes because I, I used to love the boozy lunches with mm. the girls, of course. Uh, but now I go to a smart hotel or something. Yes. Have an amazing breakfast and drink gallons of coffee and it's yeah. still fun. You're still laughing your head off. So, you know, I, I feel like that's filled the gap. But she was very clever to to do that with you because you obviously were where we all are in early recovery thinking, well, I can't possibly enjoy a restaurant no. anymore. I mean, when I think about it now, I, I the idea of having a lunch or a dinner without a bottle of wine, it was yeah. I, I just can't, you know. How does and that was, work? <laughs> and that was true friendship. You know, you, you discover who your true friends are because they want you to stay sober. They want yeah. you to succeed. You're not an inconvenience. And that was deeply yeah. special. So she said to me, you know, don't go out for breakfast. We'll go out for breakfast. Like, she kept saying, you haven't gone out for three months. I said, yes, and I'm never going to again. So we're going for breakfast. You don't have to drink at breakfast. That made such a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it did. So, I mean, friends, friends like that and yeah. community are, are so important. And I love the way that people in the recovery movement, we, we just get each other, don't we? Yeah. You know, straight away, we understand each other. And in your book, when I read that if, if you were only, if you only had two weeks to live, you were having that oh. conversation with your friends and you said, well, I'd spend it drinking and they're yeah. horrified. But I absolutely understand where you're coming from. Because <laughs> people keep asking you, are you sure you're an alcoholic? Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Okay, but, yeah. but how do you know? And I, say, and I say because the idea of having a drink still attracts me. And if I, if I knew I was dying, that's what I'd want. Yeah. And as I said in the book, they, I, when people said to me, well, what about your family? And I actually just was resentful. And I thought, well, well, surely they've had me sober all this time. Then give me a weekend or so. Just be mine. 
It's mad. It's mad. It's only us that kind of understand that. I, I read a book recently, just a fiction thing, and, and this lady uh, who was a drinker, her husband died, you know, and she was quite sad. She loved him that, that he died. But she, her first thought was, now I can drink myself to death quietly. <laughs> There's no one to stop you. It, when I did an AAA share after, after the book, and a lady came up to me, and up until then I'd written the book, and I wasn't sure – if I'd done the right thing for anybody else, it felt like I'd done the right thing for me. And she said to me, you know, shut up in nine years sober. And my husband just read your book. And he said, for the first time, I understand you. Yeah. And I thought if that's what that book did just for that one person, then that's all it needed to do. Oh, I'm sure your books helped so many people. So 20 years sober now. Wow. <laughs> I'm only seven. I feel like a, a lightweight next to you. No, I'll no, get there. don't say that. Don't <laughs> say that. Because at 20 years, you know that if something goes wrong, do you have a recovery in you? I tell you what's scary is I am the only person from when I got sober who is both still sober and alive. Some, I mean, I'm quite old though, a lot older than you. And, and I, I do think that I just don't have another recovery in me. I don't have the strength because it is extremely hard work, isn't it? I mean, that, yeah. that first year, I just would not want to go through that again. So it's so interesting you say that because I found the first year quite, I'm not going to say easy because there's nothing easy about it, but I found it easier than the second year. Because in the first year, everyone was being so nice to me and being so sweet and understanding. And by the time the first year's finished, everyone thinks you've got it. Because that's when they start saying, well, you'll be all right with one glass of wine yeah. now, won't you? Yeah. <laughs> just have <laughs> one. Just try. And I always say to people, if I told you I had a nut allergy, would you suggest that I just try yeah. a bowl of peanuts? Because it's yeah, the that's same. That's a very good uh, analogy. I know uh, your friend Belinda Ferguson, I interviewed her a while ago, and uh, I said to her, uh, what do you say if anyone pressures you, you know, to have a drink? And she said, uh, I loved her answer. She said, well, I, I could have one drink and then I'd have the bottle and then I'd have two bottles and then I'd steal your car keys and I'd drive to Hilbert and score some crack. <laughs> That's what I'll do, yeah. Like I say, going back to the nut allergy, I say to people, I do not understand why it is important to you that I don't drink. I can't get that. Yeah. If I want yeah. to sit there drinking my Savannah Zero or my Coca-Cola or whatever it is, what is it to you? Why is it your issue? And maybe you should ask yourself why it's an issue. And one of the things yeah. I said on during COVID, I said, if, if, if you are battling without a drink, if you're getting to the end of the day going, I'm going to scratch my eyes out or that of my partner, ask yourself, what are you, what are you filling up? And then call me and we'll talk about recovery capital because it's not normal to need it that much. No, it means there's a, a dependence yeah. there, doesn't it? Mm. So let's talk about your coaching, which obviously fulfills you greatly. Wow. Uh, when did you first get the idea uh, and where did you train and how did it all come together? So funny enough, it came from the book, From Whiskey to Water, because what I decided I would do is I thought I'll quit radio. And what had happened was people kept saying to me, they thought I had the golden answer. And I always say to people, I don't have the answers. I, can't, I don't have your answers. I, I sometimes don't even have mine. 
But I thought so many people wanted to talk to me and I was super arrogant and I'm putting that out up front. I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little course so I've got um, a piece of paper to say that I can do this. I was going to tell people what to do and <laughs> charge them money. And I did the course at a creative consciousness, which was an absolute awakening for me of what life could be like if I started working from who I was as opposed to uh, who I wanted to be maybe if I was thin, if I wasn't drinking, if I was this, if I was that. And then I started coaching as a bit of a cottage industry, but it wasn't filling the gap. I was getting tired of talking to people who didn't want to change their lives. And then I saw a wonderful, um, there's a chap called, uh, his name's David. David Collins. There we go. He Yay. did my course. Yes, yeah, so I did my Yay. course through him, through David. And I did my recovery coaching course. And that was amazing because I was so triggered by the entire thing. I was triggered by how we're supposed to talk to these failures. And I thought, Sam, you're feeling this way because you still feel like a failure. So you've got to ditch that. So I went to, co to coaching on my own to ditch how I felt about me so I wouldn't look at someone else and judge them. So it was such a, a beautiful experience. Not at the time. It was awful. It was a beautiful result. And then I started recovery coaching, which made such a difference because it's to say to people, listen, if you've stopped drinking or you want to stop drinking or you want to cut back. But what's on the other side of that? And I don't work in the uh, – so recovery coaching is complementary. It's not therapy and it's not treatment. And I've had a couple of people come to me and straight from me I've said to them, I am not your person and recommended them to treatment. I don't take on that. It's not fair and it's arrogant. But it's to say to people who aren't happy with where they are how to get to where you want to be. So what's recovery capital? So I'll give you the example of my first client who was always so kind and says, so long as you don't use my name, you can use my experience. So he came to me as an intervention. Um, his daughter was hyper, hyper anxious. And the psychologist had said, you need to get help or you need to move out. And he said, well, I'm not moving out. And I said, well, go see Sam Cowan. She's a recovery coach and she's a recovering alcoholic. So he pitched up for the first session. He sat on my couch. He looked terrible. And he said, I don't want to be here. I said, okay. He said, and I'm not going to stop drinking. I said, all right. I said, we well, got 57 minutes and you've paid me. So should we just shoot the breeze? And what came out was that drinking was his go-to when he felt lonely, when he felt sad. And all the bad things that happen when we drink that stack up. So we have to drink more. So we don't think of the bad things. So I said, well, what do you want? I don't want to stop drinking. I said, cool, well, I now know what you don't want. What do you want? I want a better relationship with my girls. He had two daughters and a wife. And I said, well, well, what would that look like? And we started thinking about what him being a father and a husband could look like. One of the sessions we talked about what he liked to do. I said, what do you like to do? I like to be with my girls. I said, right, I'm sending them away all weekend for a spa weekend. I don't believe you're just going to sit on a chair in the lounge for two days. What do you like to do that's not alcohol-related? And it came out. He burst into tears. He said, nothing. Nothing. And I said, what, yeah. what well, do that, you That's what do? happens, isn't it? We, we lose our way. We, yeah. we forget what we do like. We lose touch with ourselves, don't we? Well, in four, months, four weeks, he was back on the golf course. Eight weeks, he was going to the bush again, and he was going for walks. He was interacting. Two weeks after that, he started phoning clients. Because up till then, he said, if I break even, that's a month of profit, as far as I'm concerned. By the end of the year, he was in profit. His relationship with his wife and daughters was fantastic. And it's because he wanted to change. But also, he saw there was possibility on the other side. 
And it works so well as well, even better with family members, because family members look at living with an alcoholic and go, this is my life and it's horrific and there's nothing I can do. Well, there is. You don't have to live in this horrible yin and yang that your life is dictated by the alcoholic you live with. You can still have a life. And what happens is somebody tries to get sober or cut back. And as soon as that happens, the partner and the family go, right, I'm glad that you're not drunk today because now we're going to tell you how awful you were. And that person goes, why did I I do this? So it's about looking at the prodigal son and feeling like the prodigal son's brother and saying it's not about what you've done. It's about what's going to happen going forward because that's that's the only place we can go. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at janet at tribesober.com. That's janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah, I love that approach because if you just carry on your life exactly how it was before without the drinking, there'll be such a hole in your life, won't they? And you'll think, yeah. oh, this is dull. You know, that's that's the void, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. So in a way, the way that you coach, you're, you're fill, trying to fill the void, help them fill the void before it's created, yeah. which is a very, very wise way to do it. I wanted to ask you if you're feeling that there's a a societal shift going on, even in South Africa, you know, that we are getting alcohol-free drinks and there are more recovery groups. I would love to tell you that I agree with that. I really would. That would make me super happy. And, yes, there are a lot more non-alcoholic beverages on the market. And I myself, although there are some groups that would raise an eyebrow because I know we're supposed to stay away from anything, there is nothing nicer on a summer's day putting your feet up with an ice cold savannah zero and uh, that's my that's my non-alcoholic drink of choice but i think especially over covid we went to very dark places and especially in this country where drinking heavily is so encouraged and i notice it that it's what i'm seeing more and more in my practice is that women drink because they are bored and men drink because they feel like failure so what happened over COVID is men were out of control. They couldn't fix anything. You can't fix a disease, a virus. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't fight it. It's not like a company takeover. It's just this insidious thing. So they couldn't protect their families. And we still live in a deeply patriarchal society. Men fix. They take care of. They, they are the hunters. And when they lost jobs and when job and, and salary cuts happened and couples turned to each other, having lived this social coupley life, and went, we don't even know what to say to each other. And we don't have alcohol to lubricate that. Men started feeling more and more and more helpless. And the drinking went up because it's one place that you get to be in control of something. Women, when I say they drink because they're bored, it sounds superficial, but it's not. The amount of women who I meet who are unspeakably lonely, who are out of work, whose husbands have either left them or they're not married, and having a few glasses of wine in front of the television in the afternoon, which then becomes eight. I had one client, I said to her, just monitor what you're drinking for a week. Don't don't cut down, don't even think about it. Just monitor. She was on nine glasses of wine a day during the week, and during the weekend she couldn't count. And so I don't think, I, I see the way the kids drink. Um, I've got um, one in varsity and I see the way his friends drink. I think 
I'm lucky I've got a child who talks to me, but some of these other parents haven't got a clue. These kids are into their shooters. They don't drink wine and beer anymore. It's not a few beers around the bra like our kids, you know, like we used to do. It's into the shooters, into the, and, and I think where, where we've really, really messed up is in the sweet drinks. Because remember when we started yeah. drinking, you drank wine and you had to force yourself because nobody liked it. Yeah, yeah. One, oh, it tastes you know? horrible to yeah. start with. I mean, whiskey, the first one, until that hits the back of your throat and the neuroreceptors, you know, respond, it's gross, right? But as soon as we turned into these brutal fruits and vodka with Sprite and all of these yummy drinks with a kick, we encourage our kids to go, when I drink, I'm happy. It's potty stuff. It's like a, it's like yeah. chips when you're young, you know, and fizzes. Yeah. And so well, I that, don't. That was the intention, wasn't it, when yeah. they uh, invented worked. this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, if anything, I think it's got worse. I think for people like us, life has got easier, a lot easier. I love the fact that there's like fake gin and tonic with Duchess, and you know, you've got all these different fun drinks that you can have, and yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of actual drinking, no, I don't think anybody that I know of or I've seen in my practice. And the kids that I've seen, they're even thinking that way. Booze is here to stay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard about Freshers Week, you know, in universities oh. these days, being being sponsored by liquor industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that is I mean, so scandalous. Yeah. Because it is a drug after all. Imagine if they started handing out cocaine at university. <laughs> That'd be an uproar. But Do you remember booze. when we were little and we used to buy fake cigarettes and smoke them, the little the yeah, little sugary do, ones? Yeah. And that was yummy. I mean, we thought we were so sophisticated, all of our six-year-olds <laughs> just smoking our fake cigarettes. And that was the cigarette industry, sub-sponsored thing, that it became cool. Smoking was cool. And then smoking wasn't cool anymore. And it became inconvenient. People stopped smoking as much and became inconvenient. Well, you couldn't go to a restaurant. You had to sit in a cold, dark place at the back, you know. And I do wonder with alcohol, I don't know anyone who's ever stopped drinking because of an advert on a bottle. It's no, it's not about no. what you – it's always when people come to me because they're overweight. I say, it's not about what you're eating. It's about what's eating you. Yeah, but I often think if only alcohol could have a cigarette moment. Yeah. And I think that might happen because I used to smoke my head off. I mean, I worked at the BBC in my 20s and there was a huge office in the basement and we're all smoking. And there was, it, was like, <laughs> it was It was foggy in there, I swear. But about that time, cigarette advertising was banned. So then suddenly in the news, in the media, it said – cigarettes give you lung cancer and we were all going oh my god <laughs> so we stopped smoking a lot of us and I think you know I'm interviewing a, a Canadian scientist next week who's causing a bit of an uproar in Canada because he keeps talking and talking on the media about how alcohol gives you cancer and yeah. how it's linked to seven different types of cancer and especially breast cancer for women and you know he's causing an uproar but it's not going to stop him and I think you know that information will eventually get in the public domain and then people might start, you know, thinking twice. Because the, the World Health Organization in 1988, it produced a report that said that alcohol is a number one carcinogen. And, you know, everybody ignored it. Yeah, because it's not nice <laughs> now, to know that. I think there's more education. And at university, you know, rather than sponsoring Freshers Week, why don't they give a few lectures on, you know, what alcohol does to your health? It might might wake up the, the brighter ones. 
do your kids drink? So my son does. Well, not the 15-year-old. No, no, she doesn't. And it's funny because we've always told them, before I actually went out and said, mommy's an alcoholic, we always said, mommy's allergic to alcohol. And sometimes when you drink, this can happen. And when my son was drinking, I said to him, you need to look out for these things. Because as much as no genetic link has been proven, I have seen too many alcoholic families where so many people have some kind of addiction problem for it not to be some kind of, I mean, says the non-scientists, I'm sure you've spoken to people who are very qualified. But I said, you gotta, you got to watch out for certain things. So if, you're, if your tolerance for alcohol is high, right from the word go, watch that. If you're drinking to get drunk, watch that. If you don't remember what happened the next day, watch that. Because those are all very, very bad signs. And he just looked at me and went, you're taking all the fun out of this. And I said, well, drugs are fun. Drugs are fun. I'm never going to turn around and say alcohol is a horrible thing. It is a marvelously delicious, wonderful thing that will make you feel like a million dollars. You'll be the thinnest, prettiest, sexiest, most intelligent person in the room who can suddenly dance like Fred Astaire, you know? In your own head, of course. Exactly. You'll be a legend in your own mind. <laughs> and, and, but it's, it's fleeting and it isn't real. And, you, and what's real are the consequences. So yeah. I would rather he told me the truth than that he lied to me to, to make me feel better because it wouldn't make me feel better. I would rather know. Uh, the 15-year-old's tasted wine. She thinks it's disgusting. Um, she tasted champagne. So that was disgusting. But I know one day she's going to drink because that's what they do. Yeah. But I'd rather know about it so that I can yeah. say, listen, these are things that are triggering and be aware. Yeah. And have they read your book? They're very funny. So I told both of them that I was writing it. Because they're in it. Yeah. <laughs> and Christopher was like, oh, okay. Like he's so blasé about it. I mean, he's got so many good marks from his mother, you know, when he's done a speech. And my daughter, or she, she was like, am I in it? And I said, yes, darling, you're in it. And she goes, okay. She goes, and that's fine. But you must tell everybody that I have green eyes and long, beautiful hair. So I wrote. She has green eyes and long, beautiful hair. She's cut it all off now. But they they know I did it. They're dimly aware. My son's read it. I don't know that she's ready to. But I don't regret it. I don't regret doing it. And No, no. And if it helped, like I said, if it helped even just one person, it did what it was meant to. Just one person. You know, I say in the book that E.E. E. Cummings or E.E. E. Cummings, uh, C.S. Lewis quote, that friendship is born in the moment when one person looks at another and says, you two, I thought I was the only one. Yeah, I love that because yeah. that's that's what it's like when you meet someone in recovery, yeah. isn't it? You just get them straight away. Yeah. 100%. Awesome. So how can people find you, Sam? So they must read your book if they haven't because it's fabulous, From Whiskey to Water. I've read it twice now. Thank you. <laughs> I will come sign it for you. Um, so they can get hold of me at samcowan.coza. Uh, right. contact from there there's information on the recovery coaching that I do and my phone number's there as well they can give me a call um, you can find me on Facebook but I think the website's probably the best way to go it's easiest keenest and I see everything straight away Facebook does this weird thing that every now and again you go into a spam folder and there's all these messages from people that you've never spoken to before yeah and I think if you're if you're concerned if you are thinking to yourself like we said there's something going on there's something not quite right, then you know what? Trust your gut. There's something not quite right. Thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story with us, Sam. Let's pull out some key points. Now, Sam didn't drink at university, but when she had her first whiskey at the radio station where she worked, she loved it. She said she felt like she had come home. 
Broadcasting was a very male-dominated industry, and Sam struggled to connect, apart from when she was in the bar with her colleagues. She got a reputation for being able to hold her drink, which she wore like a badge of honour. Over the years, Sam had been either producing or presenting radio shows, and her voice was very well known throughout South Africa. But one day she did a TV appearance, and she was devastated to receive an email from a viewer saying, we thought you'd be really pretty. She hadn't really thought much about her looks before, but this nasty comment rocked her self-confidence and exacerbated her drinking. After all, it didn't matter what she looked like when she was drinking. Her drinking escalated and she started doing things that she describes as not normal. For example, she'd have to pull into a multi-storey car park for a sleep as she knew that she shouldn't be driving. Sam talked about the golden 15 minutes of clarity before closing down in a blackout while she was driving. She told us about waking up and finding blood in her car. That was the result of taking an injured man to hospital during her blackout. She has no memory of picking up that injured man or taking him to hospital. And we discuss blackouts and how scary they are, and the fact that they happen because our brain is so soaked in alcohol it can't even make memories. So it's not that we've forgotten stuff, we never had that memory in the first place. Sam got sober 20 years ago, when AA was the only option. These days, of course, there are many alternative ways to get help, including tribesober.com. The AA meetings did the trick for Sam, and she describes them as coming home, She found the warmth and support of the community enabled her to stop drinking. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis in Sam's book that summarises the connection that we feel in the recovery community. Friendship is born in the moment that one person looks at another and says, You too? I thought I was the only one. The relief we feel when we realise that we are not alone in this is deep. Sam read a lot of memoirs in early sobriety, and the book by Caroline Knapp, Drinking a Love Story, made a great impression on her. I thought it was so interesting that Sam had been sober for 14 years, but had still not really found serenity. Her time at AA had left its mark, and she felt that she had to keep doing penance or she might drink again. Like many of us, Sam experienced a void in early sobriety that feeling of, now what? She decided to fill the void with ice cream and put on 25 kgs in the process. She became invisible due to her excess weight and actually enjoyed the fact that she was still on air, still being funny, but could go quite unnoticed in public. Her excess weight was causing her a lot of joint pain. A doctor prescribed a whole list of meds to deal with the pain, which made Sam decide she must lose the weight instead of taking all these meds. And that's when she discovered swimming, which was when she felt she'd come home again for the third time. If you're in early sobriety and dealing with the void, then please have a listen to the Tribe Sober podcast episode 55 with Dr. Loretta Broining. Loretta explains that we need a project to keep our happy brain chemicals triggered. Of course, for Sam, that project was swimming, and she trained and took place in long-distance swimming events, all in freezing cold water, which of course provides more health benefits. Training as a recovery coach enabled her to find her place in the world. She realized that she could help people, 
and she's been able to find her purpose. Sam did her training with David Collins at the Ubuntu Academy of Coaching. He is a renowned international coach and has been interviewed for this podcast, so watch this space. Sam explained that recovery coaching is complementary. It's not therapy and it's not treatment, but it does help people in early sobriety reconnect with themselves and figure out what they actually want out of life. To learn more about Sam and her coaching, go to Sam Cohen Coza, and of course her book is essential reading if you're thinking about giving up drinking or if you're in recovery. It's called From Whiskey to Water and there's a link to it on her website. So let me finish with a message from one of our chat rooms. I'm going to find the first one that inspires me. And that was Janine. Janine is one of our members that's been through the void and she's come out the other side. And she's delighted with what she's found. So this is her message. Thank you, Janet and Lynette. I couldn't have done it without you both or without Sue, Lucy and everyone else in this tribe. To all those struggling, I can't emphasize enough that if you just keep getting back on the bus, even if it takes years, finally it will click and you'll be blown away by how worthwhile it is when you get there. I never thought this was possible. Now I know it is. You'll start doing new things you love and you'll rediscover long forgotten things you used to love. And it will then make absolutely no sense to go back to drinking. Well, thank you, Janine, and many congratulations on your success. Every week we have a PDF to give away. This week we've got one called 18 Ways to Stay Sober. Just email Janet at tribesober.com if you'd like a copy. And if you'd like to join our Facebook group, then just go to Tribe Sober on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast, and we'll be so grateful if you'd leave us a review. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.